Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is sponsored by Other Voices Queretaro. I think that's how you pronounce it, Queretaro, Q-U-E. R-E-T-A-R-O. It's a city in Mexico, and Other Voices Queretaro is a vibrant, multifaceted writing program set, you guessed it, in Queretaro, Mexico. It focuses on both fiction and creative nonfiction, as well as the ins and outs of contemporary publishing. The program was co-launched by Gina Frangello and Stacey Beerline, long-standing business partners editing Other Voices magazine and Other Voices books, which is now an imprint of Dezank Books. So if you're looking for a great writing retreat, a great summer writing program, look no further. Other Voices Ketataro is happening this summer, July 5th through July 14th, 2013. It will offer three morning workshops to choose from, led by authors Pam Houston, Rob Roberge, and Joseph Novakovich. And there will be an evening wine and publishing section for the entire group. There will also be two group excursions. For more details, please visit com. It's a writing program in Mexico. Go and participate in it. Dios mío. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a monologue plus a dialogue. This is hopefully providing some level of mild psychological comfort. How are you today? Uh, I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in L.A., Los Angeles, California. It's a pleasure to be with you. I was just out for a walk earlier this morning, and I was in a park, and I was on a trail up in the hills of Los Angeles, and there was a bench along the trail, just off of the trail, a few feet, uh, at, a, at a kind of lookout point, a vista. And recently, I've been trying to make an effort to stop more often in in a variety of situations, but especially in these kinds of situations. So for example, if I'm walking on a trail and there's an empty bench looking out over a Canyon or looking out over the city, 
uh, I try to make myself stop for at least five minutes. Because why not? You know, like five minutes of your life. I want to smell the roses. But uh, the thing is, there, you know, there's obviously a lot of people here in Los Angeles. So most of the time, these benches are occupied. And as a courtesy, I never go sit on a bench if somebody's already there. Even if there's room. Which there usually is. I don't do it. I think it's rude. You know, you're out in nature or, you know, some semblance of nature. And this person is obviously uh, sitting there having a word with himself or herself. I'm not going to invade that space. But uh, unfortunately, I've realized that not everyone has the same idea uh, about personal space that I do. And and I think, like, as I'm on this uh, topic of conversation, I think this is related to my... Uh, the problem that I have with uh, people who bring fast food or any kind of smelly food onto airplanes, which I've talked about, it's the same exact principle. You don't do that on an airplane. You're in a germ tube. You're in a, <laughs> you're in a filthy closed environment in tight quarters with other human beings, most likely for five hours or less. You can wait to eat your quarter pounder until after we land for God's sakes as if you're going to die if you don't have like Kentucky fried chicken sometime during like the three hour flight across the country it's absurd so anyway uh, like recently I've had uh, back to this bench thing like recently I've had two opportunities to sit on this particular bench at this particular lookout point. And in both cases, I've taken advantage of it. I've taken a seat on the bench and uh, both times, both times someone has invaded my space. Sat like one person sat down right next to me. And, you know, just to be clear, this is not a bench in a city park per se. This is up in the Hills. This is a little bit removed from the city. It's as close to a nature experience as you can have in Los Angeles. You know, like if you're at a bus stop, fine. You know, pack them in on the bench. But this is a scenic overlook. (laughs) So there I am. I'm sitting there alone. I have my headphones on. I'm trying to have a word with myself. And suddenly I feel it before I see it. You know, but suddenly I, I glance to my left and there is a stranger sitting next to me, like six inches from me, (laughs) this like panting man, he's panting, he's out of breath or, you know, he's, then he's like texting and I just find it so rude. People are awful. (laughs) I mean, is it really going to kill you to not sit on this bench? Can you not just give a, a, a person a little bit of space in nature And then this morning, uh, it got even worse. You know, I'm sitting there, I'm on the bench, I have my sunglasses on, I have my headphones on, I'm, I'm solitary. 
And I even have my eyes closed. I'm just trying to like sit for a minute in my life. Not do anything. And I'm listening to music. I guess I was doing that. But I'm just sitting there having my moment. And suddenly uh, this bench starts shaking. And I look to my left and it's a girl. It's a young woman. Uh, A very attractive young woman in like Lululemon workout gear. Like one of those girls. You know what I'm saying? And this girl is doing dips about a foot from me. Is that what it's called? I don't even know if that's what it's called. But uh, she was working on her triceps essentially using the bench as a tool. As like a workout tool. <laughs> and uh, she, and after she's done doing that, she turns around and she starts doing push-ups against the bench like a foot from me as I'm sitting there. And the whole bench is shaking and my Zen moment is completely obliterated. And uh, I wanted to push this young woman off the cliff. <laughs> I wanted to physically pick her up and punt her out into space. It's just obnoxious, you know? People are obnoxious. Have some courtesy is what I'm saying. I realize we live in a big city with limited resources and limited space or whatever, but uh, this is beyond. <laughs> to quote Reese, uh, Reese Witherspoon, this is beyond. Uh, yeah. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So anyway, my guest today is Anna Stothard. Very pleased to have her here. Her debut novel, Isabel and Rocco, was published in 2004, back when uh, I believe she was still a teenager. She's sort of a wonderkind uh, over there in the UK. Her second novel, The Pink Hotel, was published in 2011 and was long-listed for the Orange Prize, and it has just been published here in the United States by Picador, and it is now available. Uh, I should also add that her latest novel, The Art of Leaving, is now available uh, from Alma Books, I believe. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen, the lovely and talented Anna Stothard. I am in a hotel called the Hollywood Pension, which is um, in Los Feliz, sort of Wilton and Franklin. And I'm feeling incredibly nostalgic because it's just near where I used to live in Los Angeles. And I'm back for a few days, and I haven't been back for a long time. 
Oh, okay. So, I mean, I feel bad. I, like I was just saying before we got on the air, I should have had you over to do this in person seeing as you're in Los Angeles. But we're essentially talking like a mile, not even a mile apart. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah well, never mind. You, yeah, because you were going to call me when I was in London, but, but it didn't happen. Right. So, and then you used to live in Los Angeles? Yeah, I lived in um, sort of Little Armenia and Thai Town um, in in an apartment block where you sort of would step out of the door and there would be on the weekends a crazy Armenian wedding going on and then you'd you'd pick through the Armenian wedding and then you'd get to kids peeling oranges at a Thai altarpiece outside a, outside a Thai shop, which is amazing and you never get in London, sadly. Well, and you know, that's the thing. That's, that, that's a part of Los Angeles that I don't think gets enough attention is like how multicultural it is and um i want to say i read somewhere that los angeles has more um nationalities represented within its city boundaries than any city in the world yeah and what's weird about it is that i mean obviously there are i mean london is very multicultural as well and there are all these pockets of different cultures but at the same time in LA, they seem to hover over each other. They are these very distinct bubbles of of culture. But like Little Armenia is on top of Thai Town, but they don't interact, as far as I can tell. I mean, it was like the Thai people didn't see the Armenian people, who didn't see the porn stars who were jogging by. <laughs> All these different kind of layers of the city, and everyone talks about LA sprawling outwards and being all these suburbs. But as far as I could tell, it was so even within each area, there were so many different um, different types of stories and scenes that you that you could see just standing in one space on one on one um, corner on one sidewalk. Well, and that's the thing is that there's like all these really weird and interesting juxtapositions. Like I've always found the juxtaposition of Koreatown and Hancock Park to be very interesting. You know, like yeah, uh, you know, you have all these like stately old Hollywood mansions like abutting like the Korean spas and restaurants, and you know, they're just right next to each other, and you're you know, you can pass from one to the next in a span of two minutes. It's it's very unique, I think. Yeah, it is very unique. Where are you? Uh, like Hollywood, West Hollywood-ish. Uh, trendy. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's trendy. I, I, I think uh, the, the section that I'm living in is, is not trendy. <laughs> right. Hollywood is kind of what people, when, when people think of L.A., though, when well, you sort of tell people that about L.A., I think West Hollywood is, is what they imagine the whole of Los Angeles being. Yeah, I mean, I always say, like, I mean, when it comes to, like, uh, Los Angeles, there's no real center because of the way that, you know, there's the sprawl. And there, it, it's just not organized like cities elsewhere in the world, you know, that have a more uh, coherent uh, grid or something. So uh, if, if Los Angeles has a center, you know, a center to it, I always say it's probably West Hollywood, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, you know, I've lived here for 12 years. I'm not from here. And so... I want to make sure you don't hold back if you have criticisms of L.A. because, you know, I, I love it here, but I, I, I'm not the kind of person who would take great offense. Um, you know, I have my own bones to pick with it. So what about it? Like, I'm interested to hear your take not only on L.A., but maybe the states in general, uh, seeing as you're from overseas. Like, what was it like to be an expat here? Well, if you say so many people, I mean, they're not expats, but so many people are from, you know, very few people are from L.A., 
So I think it's almost a, a fantastic place to be an outsider and to be foreign because everyone comes here with some grand dream. Everyone comes here with some yearning to be different or to to take on a, a different identity. And people come here to make it and and... I feel like I, nobody, it didn't really matter that I was English and someone else was from the Midwest and someone else was from the South and it was, it didn't, it didn't, I didn't feel particularly alien. Um, but <laughs> I loved LA when I arrived. I mean, I saw, I didn't expect to like it. I thought it would be like walking around a sort of glossy magazine and I, arrived after a road trip around um, California and Nevada. And I arrived quite late at night at this giant pink hotel called the Cadillac in Venice Beach, and which became the pink hotel of the book. And I was fully expecting to hate it. Now, if you could see me, you would see that I'm very pale. Slightly awkward. I don't do beaches. I don't do surfing. I don't do pool parties. <laughs> um... And I just thought, I thought that LA would be a nightmare. I was totally ready to hate it and come back with horror stories about this and that. But I felt completely in love with it. I mean, I loved the sunlight and the eerie sunlight. It's not like normal sunlight, it's sort of like being in the eye of a storm. And um, I loved the sort of apocalyptic sense that it was just about to, there was just about to be forest fires and droughts and earthquakes. And, and completely adored it. And also a storyteller city. I mean, as everyone's everyone's foreigner, but they're also everyone's obsessed by story. Everyone's writing something or becoming something. And um, yeah, I think it's unique in that way. You know, just like to have a city where the the main business in town uh, truly is the creative arts is that's unusual. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, I mean. Just everyone, you know, the baristas and the dentists have have screenplays underneath their counters, and and everyone. <laughs> I would say, so I remember sitting in a cafe quite early on when I moved here and listening to this conversation. And this guy was analysing his marriage, and he was talking about it entirely in screenplay terms. So he was talking about the um, second act low point of his marriage oh, what the turning point of his marriage was like the midpoint turning point and um and how she his wife she didn't he didn't say that his wife had a traumatic childhood he said that his wife had a traumatic backstory oh my god wow <laughs> that's, wow that's that i feel like that's too much i feel like that guy needs help yeah, but like everyone is sort of, you know, you walk outside and in the car parking lots, there are people practicing their lines and it's sort of surreal. They kind of have this, suddenly their past, you know, their face changes and they become this other characters. They're pacing the parking lot outside the Dresden, practicing their sides for the audition that they're about to go to. Yeah, no, it's like, it's funny. I see, you know, I've seen, I don't know how many people in my time here getting their headshots done in like alleys or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> and you just get used to it, you know, but it's really not that normal. Like people from other places would probably see, you know, some of the things I see, like, what did I see the other day? I was going for a walk in the morning with my dog and it was like seven in the morning. It was early and I'm walking up a sidewalk in Hollywood and this guy 
is dressed in full Captain America garb, like the full suit. <laughs> and he's walking towards me and like it was like, you know, I said good morning, he said good morning. That was it. <laughs> I was like oh. And then after after he passed, I was like, you know, that was that was like a Los Angeles moment. You don't get that most places, you know. No. So the moment I decided to leave LA actually, I was walking I lived um a liquor store called the Pink Elephant, which is um, actually where Bukowski used to go and drink. But I walked past there, and I was oh, I was going for cigarettes, and I went there, and there was lots of coroner's tape and lots of policemen. And I thought, oh shit, um, you know they're filming CSI or something. And walked past with the faint thought that you know maybe I could make some contacts or something. And then I realised no, it wasn't CSI. Someone from the halfway house, which was on on Western, had chopped his friend up into tiny, tiny little pieces and scattered him all over the area, including making like a blueberry milkshake out of some of his body parts. Oh but I just God. remember thinking, the fact that I had assumed it was fiction, I'd assumed that this, this macabre scene was... Um, invented with story and I had thought about whether I could make any contact from these people was a very bad thing. I should probably go home before I went completely and utterly insane. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I don't mean to laugh because it's an awful story, but there is, um, there's something absurd about it. And then there's also, you know, there's a real macabre element to Los Angeles, which I think is why there's all the, you know, the crime novels like the Ross McDonald and the, um, Oh God, who am I? I'm blanking on the guy's name. Who's the famous one? Nathaniel uh, West. Yeah, him. But then there's another guy. But anyway, there's a whole tradition of these crime novels in Los Angeles. Uh, oh, crime novels. Sorry, I yeah, know. I was thinking of um, yeah, just just mad LA novels. Yeah, crime novels. Um, Chandler. King? Yes, Raymond Chandler. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, but it's like you know because it's kind of a. It, it's a city where it's easy to be anonymous. It's a city where it's probably pretty easy to hide, uh, and you know, there's really weird, dark things that happen. Like I remember in this neighborhood uh, several years ago, before I actually lived in this neighborhood um, proper, there was a guy, like a crazy street person. I want to say he was like a vet and he was really mentally ill. And he walked into this guy's house, this old man who was a screenwriter, who was probably in his 70s or 80s, was on the phone making an airplane reservation uh, and this guy just bursts into his house and beheads him. Uh, and the woman on the other end at like Southwest Airlines heard all of this happening. And they found the guy um, in an alley and he was walking them, you know, in the alley and he had taken his belt off and threaded it through the head and was holding like swinging it like a bowling ball. I'm not even kidding you. Like it's that crazy as stuff. But that was like not that was like, you know, right around the corner. <laughs> Uh, which I, I hate to say, but you know that sort of stuff happens. It's a big city, which yeah. I, I guess you know any big city you're going to have pretty dark things happen from time to time. But Los Angeles seems to you know bring out a crazy element that might not exist elsewhere quite so much. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah, it absolutely does. I wonder if it, whether that's odd in a way, isn't it? Because, you know, you come here and it smells like honeysuckle and lemon and exhaust fumes and it's beautiful and the weather is perfect and yet it, you know, so much of the literature and so much of the 
um, cinema is incredibly dark. I mean, even the things that aren't crime novels, the LA literature that isn't crime novels, you know, the Brett Easton Ellis and Donna Spiotter and, and so many LA novels are, are so dark for such a beautiful place. But well, maybe that's the fiction. Maybe it is that, what we're saying about, about you know, the fact that you see a guy in Captain America outfit or you think it's a CSI, sort of the disparity between between your real day-to-day life and this incredible possibility that you're offered by romantic comedies and cinema and the imagination version of Los Angeles. Maybe it sends everyone insane. Well, and it's that, and then I I think, like, it's probably irresistible for storytellers because of the beauty of this place. And, like, this is something I always argue. It really is beautiful. Like, the weather... It's a little creepy. It's like living on a soundstage. You know, there's like there's not even any yeah. there's not even any wind. You know, <laughs> like, um, but it's beautiful. And like like you said, this the air smells like jasmine. And like you know, there's green hills in the winter, and it's always sunny. And there's flowers bursting everywhere. And I think like the surface level beauty of Los Angeles and that sort of uh, surface level perfection lends itself from a storytelling perspective to telling dark stories because of the contrast. You know, like. Yeah. It's sort of irresistible, but I think like the really dark stuff, well, I mean, I think like the dissatisfaction and the unhappiness that lives beneath the surface and that, you know, that glossy surface is pretty common. And I think like, you know, a town like Los Angeles, like a lot of big cities that have money, um, you know, there's like a lot of inequality and there's a lot of striving and there's a lot of ambition and there's a lot of people competing with one another. And I think that breeds a lot of unhappiness. Um, mm. but I think that the really, really dark stuff is the exception. Like, I mean, we, we, we got to hope it's the exception, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, I don't know. They're like, it's like, it, it's tempting to say that this is some really, really crazy city and we live in this exceptionally weird place. But the truth is that like, I, I'm not exceptionally weird. I don't think I'm exceptionally weird. I'm from Indiana originally. So, um, there's a Nobody lot of things are exceptionally weird. They're right. Yeah. Right. But I don't know. Do you feel exceptionally weird? Or do you feel like L.A. made you weirder? Yes. Yeah, no, I definitely think L.A. made me weirder. <laughs> How so? <laughs> um, I'm not sure it was L.A.'s fault, but I think it was sort of free time for me. I sort of I arrived and I didn't know whether I was going to stay or not. I, I wanted to and I planned to, but probably in the back of my mind... It was never entirely home to me. So I was, you know, it didn't matter if I was sad or deliriously happy or, you know, my toaster was broken or my sofa had come from the side of the road because it was just free time. It was blank space. It was just absolute freedom. Um, So... which is, was wonderful for a while. And then, I, I don't know why, I was actually, I hadn't been back in ages, and I was met some friends who I hadn't seen in a long time. And we were both, yeah, we were all discussing, but I definitely went a bit weird at the end of my two years in LA. Like, like did you get a tattoo? A little bit of the rails. Did you start yeah. getting tattoos, or did you start doing lots of drugs, or like, how did it manifest? <laughs> um, no, I don't have any tattoos. 
Um, I don't know how it manifested. I think I just, I became far more anti, I mean, I'm pretty antisocial anyway, but I became much more antisocial, um, which is very easy to do. I didn't drive. I can't drive. Um, so I spent a lot of time lost on LA buses with the meth addicts and the, and the, um, and all the genuine crazies of which yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, I mean, in terms of, of, whether LA is weirder than other places. I mean, I don't know about the rest of America, but certainly, I mean, probably gonna, someone's gonna get mad at me because I don't know the details of this, but like something to do with mental institutions. I mean, you, there are a lot of crazy people on the streets in LA. Yes. Like in England, if someone is crazy, if someone is mentally unstable, not crazy, that's a bad word, mentally unstable, you know, they, some, you know, they get put in a, I know, but I think there are just a lot of clearly people who need help on the streets in Los Angeles. There are, there are, are 10,000 people living downtown homeless every night. 10,000. Like, that is something people don't realize. You just don't see it, you know? And uh, But if you take a drive in, uh, you know, down Skid Row at, after dark in Los Angeles, it's shocking. And... Um, you know that you know my neighborhood. There's tons of street people and crazy people, and you know you live with that. And I don't know. It does something to you. I don't know. Hopefully, it makes me more empathic. You know, but I think it also can be a, it can be stressful. You know, I find it stressful to see that day in and day out. I mean, I I know their names. You know, at this point, like they're like you know they're a part of my atmosphere. I see them every single day. I say hello, and it's you know there's a guy that lives on the corner. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I remember there was a guy who, who yeah, he just used to shuffle up and down the bit of Hollywood Boulevard near Western, just from like this, the cafe that I used to work, and sort of just around the blocks. He would just shuffle and shuffle and shuffle and shuffle. And everyone knew him, and everyone would say hi, and he had these glassy eyes. And it was incredibly stressful to see that kind of desolation right. on a daily basis. Well, and it's like, what do you do? Like, I've wrestled with this over and over again, and it's like, uh, it seems obs- it seems obscene to walk past these people, especially day after day, and not do anything. Like, there's something I could do. So it's like, but then what do you do? You give them money, and then what do they buy? And yeah, you know, do, yeah, I mean, you give them a Gatorade, and you just feel small. You're like, is this? You know, I don't know what to do. I give them, I do give, like, especially in the summer when it's really hot, I always try to keep them hydrated, but. Um, there's only so much you can do, I think, but it, it seems like as a society, we should be able to do better. <laughs> mm. um, so let's talk about the pink hotel. I want to hear about how, I mean, you, you, you alluded to it earlier with regard to the hotel that you stayed at in Venice, but I want to hear more about it because it sounds like a fascinating place. It clearly it was fascinating to you because it wound up being, um, you know, somewhere near the center of this novel that you wrote. So talk about that place. Um, I've always loved hotels. I find I find something. Um, I think a they're the best cure for writer's block. You come to a hotel and you have all the familiar trappings of of life and of a bedroom. You have the lamps and the bed and 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 the bath and yet yeah, it's like a theatrical set and they're all like props and everything is very. Um, clear and you can just sort of put on whatever performance you are um, you, you want to put on. Um, 
And the pink hotel, well, the Cadillac Hotel in Venice Beach was all sort of the first thing of LA that I saw. And it was this absurdly pink, kind of blowing dusk. I have sort of, it looks mythic in my memory when I think about it. And um, all the perfect people, and there was a party going on, and these perfect people on the fire escape looking down on, on what looked like a hologram of an Arcadian um, beach. And I'd had the idea for the Pink Hotel for quite a long time. I'd had this concept of the girl going out and, and trying to discover things about her dead mother, but I never really had a place to put it. And, yeah, I remember having a cigarette on the the fire escape of the Pink Hotel and looking down on the beach and thinking, I could definitely, definitely um, put something here, place something here. And, yeah, so I stayed for a week. And it's sort of, it was much, it was much rougher when I, when I went. I went back um, two years ago. I'm actually going back again this afternoon. I'm quite excited. Um, but when I went back, it was much smarter, sort of much more Art Deco, um, less of a backpackers party hotel. Um, but I definitely felt like I'd invented it. I was very confused when I went back. It was like I kept thinking that that was where the characters were drinking. That's where so-and-so was dancing. That's where the mother's bedroom was. And it felt like, it felt like a stage set. It felt like I'd conjured this hotel into existence, maybe that's egotistic. And then, you, did you say? I mean, had it changed much? In like when you it got, it become smarter. Yeah, it it had become more art market. Okay. It was less when I first got there. You know, it was very backpacker. Although, of course, weed is now legal there, so it smelled just absolutely of marijuana. Was like stick with weed. Yeah, Venice Beach. Like I, I don't even know. Is it legal? I mean, it feels legal. It feels like it's legal. You go to Venice Beach on the boardwalk, and there's like you can just there's like 50 people trying to give you uh, what is it? Medical yeah, marijuana cards. Yeah, I think it's medically legal. So there are, yeah, there are lots of people in white coats pretending <laughs> to be doctors. <laughs> Uh, and then your mother, uh, there were some love letters that were also involved in the conception of this novel, correct? Uh, yeah, when I was 15, I found a bunch of um, love letters in my mom's bedroom, which I wasn't meant to find, and they were um, not from my father. And But they were these amazing, beautifully written letters, and... I sat cross-legged on my mom's floor and and read them all, um, even though I shouldn't have done, and felt very strongly that, I don't know, that, that I liked the guy in the letters, that he seemed like a fun guy and was fascinated by this idea of my mother before she became my mother. And I look very much like my mother and quite similar in a lot of ways. And... I just remember wondering what would it be like to meet this guy? What would would he recognize me? Would we have got on? Um, Were you? I mean, uh, did it did it feel strange? I mean, like to read your mother being like you know in love with this other guy at this different time in her life, like someone aside from your from your dad. Yeah, it was strange. I think you think, especially when you're I was fifteen. So especially when you're fifteen, you think of your mom as just your mom. 
is not any, you know, she's not a, not a person other than your egotistical um, um, thoughts on her. So it was kind of amazing to to be a, to see this version of her, which I'd never seen before, and which was actually more. You know, when you're 15 years old, you know you can't possibly imagine being a mother, but you can imagine being in love. And so it was actually really interesting to to read about this person that you have the genetic capacity to become in a way. Um, and yeah, to read this this other reality of hers. Okay, so and did you find yourself? like attracted to this guy based on what he had written? I mean, were the letters written by her or were they, they were written by him or was it both? No, they were written by him. Okay. So you, did you find yourself thinking like, this guy's great. I want to meet this guy <laughs> or someone like him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not to be creepy because it gets creepy in the book and nothing got creepy in reality. Um, but yeah, for sure. They were very funny, um, beautifully written letters. And, I did, definitely. I did. I mean, I wouldn't have ever gone and sought him out, but like the girl in the pink hotel does. But yeah, it definitely crossed my mind. Um, do you think he's, do you think he's aware? Him. Do you think he's aware of you and your publication history and possibly knows that you read those letters? Uh, he's dead. Oh, he is. Okay. Well, then I guess he's not. <laughs> <laughs> but um well, he wasn't dead when I read the letters, but obviously he wouldn't have known that I read the letters. And your and your mother is she still with us? Like, did she find out that you read these? Yeah, actually, when he died, um, she told me about him, and I was like, "Yeah, I've already read the letters." <laughs> and what did she say? What did she, she say? I think she was so sad at the time that he was dying, that he was dead, that um, she she was too sad to be angry with me about having read the letters. And what? what and it was he, a long time ago by that point. How did he die? It seems like he must have died young. If he died, you know, how how old was he when he passed? I don't know. Um, he died of a heart attack. I don't know how old he was. Um, I guess, like, yeah, I think, yeah, I have no idea. Fifty. Fifty. Yeah. So he was a young man. Yeah. Um, well, that's sad. that's kind of a sad story, but it's also you know I guess it, it led yeah. to the, led to the writing of this book in some capacity. So uh, he lives on somehow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so uh, let's talk about. I want to know more about uh, your childhood in England and how it led to um, the publication of your first book, which happened, I think, at a pretty extraordinarily young age. Is that right? Um, yeah, I wrote. Isabel in Rocco when I was, I must have been 17 or 18. It was published when I was 19. Okay. So that's very, you know, that's unbelievable. So uh, where are you from in England, first of all? Um, born in North London. So born in kind of Islington and brought up um, partly in sort of Chalk Farm, which is also in North London. And I lived in Washington, D.C. for a little while as well. Okay, so what do your folks do? Are they writerly people? I mean, or diplomats? What's happening here? They were in D.C. Um, Dad is a journalist. Okay. And mom is also a writer and a journalist, actually, as well. Oh, okay. Like, what kind of journalism? Yeah, so are very they? much so. What are they covering? 
dad is, well, he worked for, he's thinking about all sorts, but he, he sort of did politics and um, he was doing politics, that's why we were in Washington. Um, but now he does literary journalism. He does um, the Times Literary Supplement, which is a bit like, I guess, the um, New York Review of Books or something. Okay, okay. And, uh, you know, as a child, I guess it sounds like you were sort of born to this, but as a child, you were bookish, you were readerly, you know, is this something yeah, you... Yeah, I was bookish. I was very antisocial. Very. Do you have siblings? Madly antisocial child. And I wrote, yeah, I wrote, I mean... Yeah, I just used to write an awful. I did used to read an awful lot as well, but I, I, I was always a very earnest little kid who always had a project going on, and was always was always writing something. I wrote two very sinister novellas when I was sort of thirteen or something, um, called Fairies and Fever Eyes, about psychic circus children and suicidal mermaids. I think they were the, the first sort of long long thing that I wrote. Um, and then, yeah, yeah I, wrote, I wrote other random things before, before Isabel and Rocco. Yeah, I didn't have any friends. You didn't, ha- you didn't have <laughs> any friends? <laughs> Many friends. Oh. I mostly just sat in my room and, 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 and wrote. And where do you think that comes from? Like that, that I, you know, that solitary uh, nature of yours. I've got better. I'm more sociable now. You are. Um, like, where does it come from? Were you unhappy? Were, were you were you a happy child, or was this was this rooted in unhappiness? I don't remember being unhappy at all. No, I don't remember being unhappy. I think I was just. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember being unhappy. Well, I mean, I think solitary to have a solitary nature is um, somewhat normal for writers. I mean, it kind of comes with the territory. So. Uh, if your parents were writers and have some of that in them as well, it kind of makes sense that you would. And then uh, as you were kind of locking yourself in your room and writing novellas at the age of 13, were your parents uh, in any way concerned or were they like, you know, supportive and understanding? No, they were very supportive and very understanding. I mean, they're both, both writers as well. So I don't think they never made it sound seem like it was a strange thing to be doing on any level. Right. See, I think some parents, if they might not have any background in this, would look at their child and, and be concerned if they were spending hours on end doing that. But, that, you know, that's kind of a luxury. And did they were they able to give you guidance and stuff? Like, were they reading your stuff as you were a young, yeah, a very were. young writer? So, like, with, the, with, the, uh, with Isabel and Rocco, was that something you were handing to them and they were taking a look at before you went out with it? Yeah. My mom, yeah, both of them are... are really good readers but my mom in particular um is the first person I give stuff to and so she read yeah they both read his star rocker which must have been kind of surreal for them because it's not that it's, it's about his mom rocker is about a brother and a sister who are <laughs> abandoned rather briefly by their parents and they um and a couple of weeks alone in in their hotel in Cam- I mean in their house in Camden, which was very near and sort of semi based on our house. And I think I remember Dad saying that it was very strange because sort of little bits and pieces. But it's quite a dark book, and 
little bits and pieces of our actual life, um, like a sculpture or a conversation or a place we went for dinner, sort of made its way into the into the novel, but then got warped into this very different and and um, not necessarily um, sweetness and light. <laughs> and so I uh do you have siblings or are you an only child? Uh no, I have I have a brother, a younger brother. Okay. So and, and is like Rocco I mean Isabel and Rocco or is basic is, is that you and him essentially in some way? <laughs> no, it's about incest. Oh, okay. Well then I guess it's not <laughs> Oh my god. Um Wow. No, it's not. I say it, it gets it got billed when it came out as being about incest. It's really not. It's about a brother and a sister who have a slightly too intense relationship. And no, it's definitely not me and my brother, my poor, poor little brother, who's younger than me. Rocco is older than the girl. Um, very much, very much has nothing, no connection to um, <laughs> my poor brother. Whatever, yeah, whatever. You who mean. was an absolute trooper about it. He was so. Um, yeah, he didn't. Yeah, he was. He was very good about it. Uh, okay. His, you know, if anyone teased him, he was just like, "No, shut up, ridiculous." <laughs> so okay, so you're 19 years old, and you finish this thing, and your parents read it, and they tell you that it's good. I, I would presume, or that you know they like it. So then, what mm-hmm. happens? How do you? I mean, you you know you you have enough. Um, you're precocious enough that you're gonna. You're thinking to yourself, "I'm gonna publish this thing." Is that correct? Yes. Okay, and so um, how, how did that happen? Well, I mean, again, I said it's incredibly helpful to have parents who are in that world. Um, and so I think they saw it and could see the potential for it. And... Yeah, I sent it out to agents and got an agent from it. And I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a difficult sell, I think. And that's not me being arrogant about the worth of the novel. But I was nineteen, and it was quite racy subject matter. So it got you know a reasonable amount of press and things. And and yeah, it did really well. Did it sell well? It did, yeah, in England. It didn't come out in America, but it sold it sold really well in England, yeah. Oh, okay, so... It was all very surreal. And so, okay, then you, then you go to university, and you're already... I mean, was it a bestseller in the UK? I don't know whether it was a bestseller, but it was... It did well. I don't remember how it did. It did... Yeah, it did really well. Okay, but so, like, when you get to university, are people aware of this book, and they're aware of you? Like, did you have any kind of, like, celebrity status in any way when you got there? <laughs> not that I noticed. Um, not that I noticed. But you. But must... it was. I mean, it it did exist, and you know, people had read it, and I remember it being passed around. Yeah, when I when I got there. So I mean, it's slightly surreal, I suppose, that you write. But I mean, that's just writing in general. You write these incredibly intimate things that you'd never imagined anyone would read. And you sit alone in your room and and write all these things, and then and then suddenly anyone can read it. So I suppose it was it was strange going to university and everyone had 
read this. Yeah, read read the book. Well, not everyone, but some, if they wanted to, they could have read this this book. Anyone who is smart had read it. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, all the cool people read it, but like, you must have had confidence. This must have given you like great confidence in some way to be. Sh- I mean, I can't even imagine if you. Uh, could have known me at age 19. Um, there was no way I was writing anything worthy of public, you know, publication at that age. So you, I mean, did you, you must've felt good about yourself to be walking around campus with like a successful publication under your belt already. Like, uh, what, what was your sense and your scale, the scale of your ambition at that point? Because, you know, regardless of how uh, advanced you must've been, you were still 19. Like, did you at any point have like delusions of grandeur? Like I'm the next, I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, did it, did your head, yeah. did, did you ever get big headed about it? You know, you have to ask my friends. Um, <laughs> it, I mean, it was, it was very strange and I mean, it was wonderful and I'm not complaining on any level, but it was not necessarily, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing and I'd written this, I, didn't, I mean, I don't like being the center of attention. I don't like, um, like everything that you just described, like it makes me feel all shivery. I think if I, <laughs> if people had all read it and stuff, I really just blanked it out. But I think it did, it did upset me actually, because I didn't, I didn't write anything again for a while. So when it first came out and I thought, oh, well, you know, I should keep going with this, but I didn't actually... You know, I went to university and I I didn't write. I even stopped doing journalism. I didn't really want any of what I just had to continue. What did you study in school? So I certainly didn't enjoy it um, English. Okay. So but at least you, 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 at least you continued on that track from an academic standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. And I yeah, was much more into the um, academic side of it than, than writing fiction. For a while, and then I didn't even after university. Everyone was like, "Oh, you're going to write another book," and I didn't. I came to LA and decided I was going to be a screenplay writer, um, and didn't actually, yeah, write another book until until the Pink Hotel. Okay, so how many years was that? Like, how many years went by in between the publication of Isabel and Rocco and then the Pink Hotel? Mm. Like five. Okay. Well, it's not that long. And then, what about the the screenwriting ambitions? Like, did you, you did you get here and find yourself? Um, I don't know. Like, I, have you written a screenplay that's been produced or anything like that, or did you find yourself kind of thinking this isn't for me? I went to film school. I went to the American Film Institute and did screenplay writing. And at first, thought it was wonderful, and was was um yeah, was absolutely going to be a screenplay writer. And I discovered I'm not a team player. I'm no good at collaboration. I'm no good at teamwork. So um, I think I sort of, yeah. Okay. So what? Like, but like, let's let's go inside of an actual experience. Like, you're a film student. You're writing script, you know, scripts for student films or something like that. And mm-hmm. then and then you go to make them, and you've got like ten different people weighing in, and people rewriting stuff, and. Is that what you're talking about? I mean, do you have any like? Exactly. Okay, and so give me. And also, you get. Um, I don't know. I think it's strange that. 
Well, at film school, it was nice because you would, you would, I would write a short script based in like a Korea town pet store, and it was amazing because then it would get made, and so your strange imagination would then manifest itself and be this physical, visual thing that you would be able to be a script supervisor on, and sort of. And I did yeah, things like stories and music videos that we shot in the desert, and I had an amazing time. But what bothered me about the longer scripts was I felt like I was writing a blueprint for something, like I was making an architectural diagram for a, a building that had nothing to do with me. And so you would write the you'd write the script, but that wasn't the finished product. Right. No, yeah, you had, and you, you had no power over the finished product. Right. You have to sort of detach yourself. Like once you write that yeah. script and, and you hand it off, like it's over for you, you know, and then it becomes yeah. somebody, somebody else's thing. And you, know. you write scripts? Yeah. I mean, here and there I'm noodling with it. It's just, it's tempting when you live here and, uh, of you know, you can make money and I have a kid, blah, blah, blah. But, um, it, you know, that's the thing is that with the book you have total control but possibly, you know, most likely a much smaller audience, you know, it just, yeah. I don't know. It's give and take. I guess the ideal maybe scenario from a filmmaking standpoint would be to write and direct because then you'd get to, you know, you'd kind of have control from the beginning stages of the process all the way through to the finish line. But that's a rare, that's a rare privilege. It seems like. Yeah, exactly. So with regard to the pink hotel, um, Anna Paquin optioned it. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And so, yep. is that is that happening? Like, what's the status? What's the status of uh, the film version of the book? Um, well, you're a couple of hours too early. I'm going to go see them this afternoon in Venice. Oh, you are okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I think they're. I don't know what they what stage they're at with it, but they're. Mm, yeah, they they're going to do it. I think, but I don't think they. I, I don't know what what stage of it. Okay, but um, I'm, it's a slippery. Yeah. It's a slippery process. It's like you know, do they have exactly, do they yeah. ha, do they have the financing, or do we not even know that? I mean, it's like it's. I, I, I really don't know. I haven't really. I haven't kept. I mean, I basically, I, I didn't, I didn't want to do the script. Oh, you didn't. So okay. I, I was going to ask. So you. I, yeah. So I'm. So I kind of, I, I'm really excited to see what she does with it, but I definitely haven't been. Um, part of the process so wait are you going to go to like the pink hotel in Venice with her and like walk around and check it out mm-hmm. oh you are okay give her like a tour of your of your past <laughs> my imagination <yeah. laughs> this is where I smoked a cigarette on the fire escape that kind of thing uh-huh. yeah. that's where David danced with the vodka bottle that's where, that's where the girl takes the bath <laughs> so um, what about your travel writing because like I was looking at uh, your website, and you've been all over the world. You do a lot of traveling, which I envy. I do. I do. Um, it actually began with LA. I did. I did a piece um, on alternative Los Angeles about um, you know if you don't want the glossy side of LA, you can go to Venice and go to the freak show and the Magic Castle and Koreatown stars and the Wend Museum and. Um, all these sort of alternative LA stuff. So I did that was my first article, and then since then, yeah, been been yeah, I love it. Obviously, it's 
It's good fun. So where have you been? Give me some places because I haven't been anywhere recently. Um, the last article I wrote was on Zanzibar. I did. Um, I went on this fantastic tour of Stonetown, which is the capital of Zanzibar, and with these two guys. Most of the tours there, it's sort of slightly touristy, and most of the tours in this beautiful old town are, you know, architectural tours and shopping tours. And I found a ghost tour. And these two guys took me around and just told me all the ghost stories. It's all built on a graveyard, basically, which I had no idea about. And um, they just told me about, you know, how this tree was haunted and this crazy rapist who was a ghost who turned up. And the whole city just went just completely mad. And nobody would sleep indoors and everyone had to sleep outdoors and on roofs because this crazy ghost wouldn't rape you if you were outdoors. And so I wrote a... Yeah, a piece about ghosts in Zanzibar. And, and who are you? Do you have like a regular gig writing travel articles for like a public? I write for the yeah, the Observer in London. Oh. So the Observer is like the Guardian, the Guardian on Sunday. Okay, so what do they do? Like they just, I mean, they keep you on a salary, and then you just say, "I think I want to." I mean, do you get to pick where you go? Or do you pick? Oh, there's no salary. Um, they, you, you, well, yeah, sometimes they do, or you, you pitch. You pitch to them. Mostly, I pitch to them. And how, how many? Do, how many do you do? Like a year? Do you know? Do you have like a set quota, or does it just kind of depend? It just depends. Okay. It's it just, just whenever I. It sounds like a dream job, you know. When you when you read these articles, like whenever I read travel articles or essays or whatever, it's like this would be great. You get to go, you know, travel around the world and go to all these far flung locales and write about it for money. It's is it is it as good as it, it sounds, or is it? It's fantastic. I mean, it's not a job. You can't, I mean, you can, but it's not. I mean, I'm sure some people do, but it would be, I think it would be tough to make a living out of it. Yeah. So it's wonderful, and it's a wonderful way to see the world. And obviously just, I mean, there's nothing nicer than going to a place and writing about it. But... You know, when people say, oh, I wish I could make my living doing that. And like, yeah, <laughs> you know, make a living. <laughs> right. Well, it sounds like anything, I mean, anything writerly and, especially, you know, journalism or writing fiction, it's extremely difficult and like, uh, not to be too depressing, but just the other day I was reading something online and they did some sort of survey, you know, I think it was somewhat, I think it was related to colleges or young people coming out of college and like the worst career of 2013 you know, there was some sort of list or ranking was journalist <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. in, ter- in terms of its prospects and in terms of one's ability to actually make a living. And, you know, it's just contracting so much. It's really hard to get paid to do it. And then um, getting paid regularly or like on, on any kind of set schedule is especially difficult. It seems like most of it's done freelance or free. Yeah, I know. Well, so much of writing, people think was just a privilege to do it. Which, it's true, it is a privilege, but at the same time, you've got to eat. So, yeah, so how do you eat? <laughs> Barely? or like? How do I eat? Yes. <laughs> um, I eat from... Well, the books are actually... So, I'm in, in England, and other books come out as well. So, I've, The Pink Hotel came out in England sort of a year and a half ago. So, I have another one um, out already. And 
yeah, both of them are, are now doing quite well. I mean, oddly, the honest answer to that is that I now eat from, I mean, the English, England, book, the book industry, I think, is even sort of more difficult than um, than America. But I eat from Europe, from Germany, from Spain, from um, selling the book to lots of different places. Right. So, and what about like your work? At, I mean, it sounds like if you, you, you're very productive. Like, are you really disciplined about how you work? No, I wish I was. I, I sort of work, I'm disciplined in the sense that I just instinctively, if I'm writing and it's going well, I just keep going and I don't stop. Um, but I don't, I'm, I wish I was one of those people who had like, you know, a neat story about how they only work for three hours every day at midnight. <laughs> um, but no, I just, when I, when, if it's going well, I just keep going and try not to stop and end up with sort of ink in my hair and post-it notes in my mouth and, and having not eaten anything but cereal for three weeks. So, I mean, so it sounds like you write in big binges. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So binge you, write it, are, and, then, and then I calm down a bit and edit it. Okay. So are you, like, are you, are you a manic person? Like, you're not sleeping? Or is it like you're sleeping and you just, you know, I don't know. What does this look like? I want to know, <laughs> like, are you cre- like writing 24 hours a day or is it not? That- no, 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 I sleep. I'm, okay. Yeah, I think it is slightly manic, though. I think people, um, people definitely think that, yeah, it looks a bit depressive. It looks a bit like I've been wearing the same clothes uh, way longer than is healthy. <laughs> um, but not like totally crazy. I'm making myself sound out sounds completely insane here. <laughs> I'm no, gonna I mean, edit this, and I'm gonna re- re- my mom's gonna hear it and be like, "Oh dear." <laughs> no, listen, it's you're you're talking to a, an understanding audience. I think most of the people listening um, are writers or aspiring writers, so they'll probably relate. But it's quite funny doing this because it doesn't feel like an interview. No. I'm now like pacing around my hotel. I don't think I've had a conversation on a phone this long since I was like 15. <laughs> well, I feel honored to be. I don't know. That sounds good. I like the I like the idea that it doesn't feel like an interview because it's just supposed to be a conversation. Um, so yeah, that, until until you put it play it back and I'm. <laughs> well, hey, I, like this. Yeah, that's I, on the internet. No, wow. but this is what I always tell people: like nobody embarrasses themselves more on this show than I do. Like so, you know, it's basically like. A, <laughs> All right, say something embarrassing. How do you write when you write your screenplays? Um, you know what? I've, I'm pretty methodical. I kind of have to be just because of the, I have a kid and I got to like, I only have so much time to work. So I try to get a page count, you know, screenplays are nice because, um, you can feel like you're making real progress. Whereas like with novels, it can sometimes feel like, um, you know, really, really, really slow. And, you know, you're writing a screenplay. It's like you get three pages done and, um, you know, it's a finite form. You have 110 to fill out, or you have, if it's a tel- you know, if it's a, a screenplay for a TV, then it's even shorter. So, it's sort of nice in that way, you know, from a morale standpoint. But it's word count for novels or page count for scripts. You know, that's kind of the way I go. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, that really wasn't very embarrassing. Yeah, well, I'm. You know, if you listen to enough of the episodes, you'll find plenty to. Uh, you'll, right. you'll be embarrassed. You'll be embarrassed for me. Um, <laughs> so, 
what about uh, struggles, difficulties? Like, you know, you, you talked about that five-year window of time in between the really early publication success that you had in your teenage years and then the publication of The Pink Hotel. But, like, uh, self-doubt, depression, uh, rejection. Like, did you have to deal with any of that in a really intensive way before you were able to overcome and move on to the next success? I think writers and rejection... I think it's one of the first things you learn is that you will be rejected. So it's like acting or so many creative professions, you will be rejected many, many, many times. And it only takes one person to like it for you to to get your foot in the door. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't think I was... I mean, I guess the screenplay writing didn't didn't work out, so that was <laughs> it wasn't that dark. Yeah, no, I'm with that dark years. I mean, I I I was always writing. I didn't. There were sort of aborted books and things that didn't quite get off the ground, but it's all worked out now. Uh, do you feel confident? I do. I do. Sometimes. Sometimes. Like it'd be, you, okay, you, I have flashes of confidence. Yeah. But do you feel like this is what you're going to be doing for your career? Like you feel, do you have a, any sense of, yeah. you do. Okay. Like it's going to be yeah. like, a, do you have a schedule? Like, do you think to yourself in order to keep a roof over my head, I've got to do a book every two years or I have to do a book every three years or, you know, is that how it plays out of your mind when you try to imagine? Definitely. I'm going to try it. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm about to move away from London and about to move to Berlin um, and I'm going to yeah throw myself into it and write another book so why are you moving to Berlin um, well why not um, one of the wonderful things about being a writer and also not having kids is that I could move anywhere I want really um, and I've been I quite like moving to different cities I like I like being a stranger in place, in a place, and seeing it from an outsider's perspective. I find it's quite good to write about. Yeah, it's like why, so, why I've like I've had that conversation with people before too, where I'm like, there's almost nothing I like better than being in a place where I don't speak the language and I don't know anybody. <laughs> me too. I love me that too. feeling. Yeah, it's like completely. I feel completely at ease in that scenario, and I think a lot of people would feel the opposite, but. Uh, I don't know. To me, that's like the most exciting. I find I find that incredibly stimulating. You know. Yeah, me too. It's really just yeah. It's great for the imagination. I think it's just stories that you never would have thought out up when you're in the confines of of your day to day life become completely available if you're outside your comfort zone. Well, yeah, and it's like it feels like maybe like the details or the. It's almost like you can see your home more clearly from abroad and you can see, you mm. know, see yourself. I, you know what I'm saying? Like you, I find myself yeah, absolutely. when I'm in a foreign territory, like uh, in, in a strange way, you go abroad and you, you wind up thinking a lot about where you're from, you know, even, yeah. more, even more so than when you're there. And um, I don't know. It's lovely. I'm, I'm envious. And so uh, how did you settle on Berlin? Was it really just random? Like I've heard it's cool there and I want to go. Or do you have friends there or do you speak German or? Nope, I have a friend there. <laughs> um, it seemed like it, it's it's not expensive there. 
it's quite, um, you can live there for not too much money. Um, well, if you, if, you, if you have the British pound, you know, it's like, that's kind of nice. I feel yeah, like exactly. I always envy people with the British pound. Like you can come over here and it's like, is it still two to one or even, even better? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really good. Yeah. yeah. Well, you envy us, except that we live in England and uh, coffee costs $10. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Not so envious. Um... So yeah, that and why else? But the the pink hotel is doing really well in Germany. Ah, so, so you're going to go find your it's a it's a friendly crowd. Mm-hmm, exactly, and make the most of that. Um, yeah. Well, I uh, you know I'm in, I, I I'm jealous that you get to go live this kind of like uh, you know international jet setting lifestyle. Do you have any sense of how long you're going to be uh, over there? Like, is it a year? You're going to do a year and then see where things are? Or? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're aiming aiming for a year and and um, yeah, unless if we totally hate it or who's we, we? Might you... absolutely love it. Our boyfriend. Ah, okay, okay. I was going to say, so you're not going alone. Okay, well, uh, I congratulate you on all the success and all the uh, the good things you have going. I wish I would have gotten a chance to meet you in person here in Los Angeles. Um, yeah, me too. Never mind. And, well, I quite like this nostalgic teenage feeling of of um, talking to a boy on the phone. <laughs> right, right. So you're like scribbling in your like spiral bound notebook or something. <laughs> Brad. <laughs> Well, uh, okay. Have fun this afternoon walking, uh, you know, through your imagination in Venice Beach. Best of I luck. Will do. Thank you. Best of luck with uh, the move to Berlin and with uh, with all your future projects. Thank you so much. Okay, you guys. There you go. That is Anna Stothard. If you're in the United States, get the Pink Hotel. It's available now from Picador, uh, or is it Picador? I never know. Also, be sure to check out the Art of Leaving, the new one. That's available now in the UK from Alma Books. You can find Anna online at annastothard.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, uh, hey, be sure to get the app, the official free Other People app. It doesn't cost anything, and it's available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best way to listen to this program, and uh, it's free. I already said that. Please go get the app. It's a good deal. Okay, uh, I think that's it. I think we're done for the uh, for the, uh, the next few days. Please be sure to give people personal space. This is my new crusade. It's my cause. Have some empathy if you see someone on a bench overlooking a canyon, uh, and if you're flying on an airplane and the flight is less than five hours in length, just eat before or after. Please. And, uh, you know, if you choose to uh, do otherwise, if you're on an airplane eating tuna fish or some such uh, nightmare scenario, uh, or you're doing lunges on a park bench next to a quiet person hoping in futility for solitude, I want you to think of me. I want you to think of my silent rage. Please remember that Beatrix Potter had to pay to publish The Tale of Peter Rabbit and that Andre Gide had a sexless marriage with a first cousin. That's it for now. Thanks for listening, folks. I'll be back in just a few days with another uh, another conversation with another writerly type person. In the meantime, please enjoy 
your personal space. I want you to have the space that you need because I'm a nice person who cares about your happiness and not an evil Nazi space invading fascist moron with a shocking lack of empathy and consideration. Was that too much? I don't know. Not far enough. Send me an email. Let me know what you think.